everybody welcome. Uh, we're, we continue along a path of very strange times and we're kind of coming to the point where we've contended with what having a, na a national and international pandemic can mean uh, to our comings and going in life, to the functional reality of our life. And so we've learned a lot through this whole period, the last month and a half, two months. But now we're confronted with what happens next. And for a lot of people, this is a really edgy subject because we're talking about what happens when we try to get the economy cranked back up again? Right now, it's been virtually at a standstill in America and even around the world. Now, we'll give you some stats on that in a minute, but toward the end of understanding what happens next, what kind of shape we're in and what we can do, and this is the empowering part of the conversation, I've invited on Zeus Yamayanis. Uh, Zeus wrote a book called Transforming Economy back in 2013, which got a lot of eyeballs at the time because it looked at an alternative view of what happens if the system falls apart, which essentially it's falling apart. So we're going to have Zeus on with some of that classical information, but with an update of what's happening now because now is something no one really anticipated. Zeus, welcome. Thank you, Regina. <laughs> and for um, those of you who don't know, Zeus is also my mate in my sweetie pie. And so he's in the house upstairs. This is an upstairs downstairs thing. I'm down in the basement <laughs> my little studio. And uh, Zeus, you've uh, started having a lot of interest in your articles and such recently because uh, you're, you were ahead of the time in 2013 yes. talking about what was going to happen if our economy ever ground to a halt. Did you see anything of this nature? I mean, no one saw COVID, but did you see anything this kind of catastrophic happening back when you wrote the book? No, I didn't. I mean, I thought that, uh, in fact, I was really trying to rush to get it out by 2012, 2013, because I thought that at that time, the, the end of the Mayan calendar, um, there were so many financial issues that were beginning to stack up, so much unsustainability, such a concentration of wealth, and so forth that I thought people were looking for an excuse to get off the treadmill. And I thought maybe that would provide it. Turns out not enough people were tuned into that, but coronavirus sure solved that problem. <laughs> 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 Nothing like having something really make you pay attention to the fabric of your own existence and your own economy than to basically have everything shut down and being forced into that mode. So uh, I had a very similar thought as what's going on now. But, you know, the, the Maya, end of the Mayan calendar, end of an era was something I think that only a few people were tuned into. In this case, everybody's tuned into this and is forced in some sense to, to reckon with it. So, so in many ways, I had the same mentality, but not the same cause, I guess you would say. Yes, and it's really interesting because so many people throughout that time were just begging, stop the world, I want to get off. It had gotten so crazy, so consumeristic. People were really getting sick of the treadmill they were on the last, really the last decade. I mean, so the thoughts you were having at that time were appropriate, but no one had, a time, had any time to really reflect on it until we were stuck in our homes with a lot of time on our hands by something that arguably could have been far more deadly than it was. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, I think it provided such an amazing opportunity for humanity to now, especially those who are not enjoying what they've been doing for a living, as we get ready to go back to work, get on the freeway, enter the rush hour traffic, mm. um, 
and go back to things that we weren't necessarily satisfied with, it'll feel even less satisfying for a lot of people because I'm hearing a lot of people say, this has been great. <laughs> now, granted, nobody I'm talking about lives in a super disadvantaged area where there's simply not enough to go around. I'm talking about kind of middle-class, you know, America. It's different on the other end. So let's, let's talk about where we are. Let's talk some numbers because the numbers say uh, a lot and the numbers are cringeworthy, but mm -hmm. I, we're not gonna stop there. We're gonna go to a hopeful place. Right, yes, the worst unemployment rate since uh, the end of the Great Depression, basically, were, or where it bottomed out in 1934. Um, and that, uh, that was, uh, it, we are now at, uh, that's 87 years ago, um, longer than most people's lives, for sure, even the elderly, and, um, and what's happened right now is that we're at about anywhere from 21 to 23% unemployment, real unemployment, it doesn't even count the people that are not trying to file for unemployment um, or who've given up looking for jobs. If you start bringing that in, we're talking even a much higher number than that. And we're talking all of this collapsing within five weeks. Um, only 7 million of it happened up to this point, and then the last 25 or 6 million have happened in the last five weeks. So literally, we have what I call, we've, we've, we've stuck a bar right in the, in, the, in the bicycle wheel as we're going on it. Yeah. <laughs> and we're catapulting out over our handlebars, okay? And we're maybe in mid-flight right now, right? And, uh, and the stock market, and uh, the financial market is being massively unhinged from the regular li lived lives and economic market of, of everyday Americans. I think and we're right in the middle of that. Yes, and that's a really important point that you just made because people have always, I always thought the financial markets and, and the economy were somehow linked. It's turning out they're essentially barely linked at all. And this mm -hmm. is turning out to be one of the greatest scams and frauds, I think, in the history of modern times, not just in our country, but in other countries as well. And one of the things that uh, struck me was someone was talking about crises, saying we're in a, we're in a physical crisis with mm -hmm. you know, a, a challenging virus coming our way. This was about four weeks ago or so, six weeks mm -hmm. ago. Uh, that we're in a social crisis because we're being separated. We're in an economic crisis because we couldn't go out and do commerce anymore. And they said, what, what, what the Wall Street's trying to do is avoid a financial crisis. And I had always conflated those two. I thought the economy and Wall Street had something to do with each other. Mm -hmm. The bad news or good news, and if you'll please explain which one it is to us, is that they really don't. These are separate realities. Well, look, and, I, and I've done a couple of recent videos on this, and people can check it out at citizenzeus.com. I, I talk in a little more in depth there about how these two have become separated. Like, and it was your insight, Regina, that really got me to thinking about it, not my own. Uh, after you had heard that from one of these commentators, you say, wait a minute, I thought the two of those were similar. And it got me thinking about how they are being unhinged and have been unhinged for a long time. So going on your insight, um, what has happened basically is this. Uh, real economy is done by goods and services, customer service, quality of goods, small business, exchange, uh, people working, getting a wage or a salary, and spending it in the consumer economy and, and, and producing something of real value. That's the real economy. Finance 
has become increasingly about bets on bets on bets. All the so-called gross national product, gross domestic product generated through the finance industry is nothing but paper trades. It doesn't actually produce anything. It's nothing but a casino, bets on bets on bets. And that really came due in 2008 and 2009. We didn't learn anything from it. All that happened from that is that the Fed, the Federal Reserve, lowered the interest rate on our savings to 0% for the next decade, all the way up till now. Now it's almost 12 years. And then they used that 0% interest rate policy to basically give unlimited sums of zero-cost money to corporations, who then use that money to buy up their own stocks and artificially inflate the value. Whenever they had a problem, they would borrow more money, buy up their own stocks, inflate the value, and then borrow even more money <laughs> based on the inflated value of, artificially inflated value of their stock. So now you have a finance industry in league with big corporations in the stock market to create a completely phony parallel that financialized fake economy next to the real economy with you and me and Main Street. There's Wall Street fake economy and then there's a real Main Street economy and then increasingly our taxes became, began to bail out. This was really seen in the last few years in which we got trillion dollar deficits unprecedented for peacetime, 80, about 85, 83 to 87%, depending on your estimate, went to the top 1% in the United States. We just be, it just became a pig's trough for shoveling money at the wealthiest and allowing unprecedented acceleration of concentration of wealth in their hands. Basically, in a parasitic, predatory relationship with the real economy and real work that you and I do and all your viewers, being just shoveled and channeled into all this fake work and scamming and betting that Wall Street combined with corporate stocks were doing. So that's where we are right now. It's finally, those two have finally come really much in hand. And you see this in the way that those Wall Streets are getting bailed out with our money and the fact that we're last in line and we're getting a very small amount of that, you know, when we are the ones in the most need by far. We're talking about getting food. We're talking about being able to pay rent. We're talking about the basics. And these companies, bailing billions out in dividends, not saving any of it, and they're just getting all the money. And this is, there's a precedent for that. It's been this way for decades. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, the sad reality is as soon as it started becoming uh, known that COVID was going to have a serious impact on the economy, the very first people who were given the money were these very same reckless entities that learned nothing from 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and have perpetuated the exact same thinking and mistakes again and practices again. And so, you know, this whole big, too big to fail mm -hmm. thing is really kind of sick. Mm -hmm. um, there's something really sinister about it yes. that you keep feeding the same beast that has gotten us into the situation repeatedly. So, now we have to start looking at what happened with the small businesses. We already know the, how our country has handled it, which is give all the money to the wealthiest. Mm -hmm. And they, we know that also these people made massive amounts of money when the COVID thing started because they were shorting the market and such. They were making money hand over fist in this manipulated market called, you know, yeah. the stock exchange, Wall Street. So then came the second wave. You know, meanwhile, the people haven't gotten a dime. No. You know, people are waiting, taking 
weeks to get through on the unemployment line to even file for unemployment to get their pittance compared to the big boys, right? So then come the small business uh, bailout, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that went to all the top, the first monies went to large companies, like $150 million businesses were considered small business. Right. So all of a sudden the money ran out in no time. So right. that frustrated and angered a lot of people because still nothing's trickling down. So talk about that and where it has gone now from there. Well, they just passed another infusion to, to clean up or to sort of round out the, uh, you know, the official or I, I guess you would, again, a lot of this is uncounted. You know, if you are not eligible for unemployment insurance or you haven't set up your business in such a way that it can be understood as a small business in a classic sense, let's say you're more of a freelancer, et cetera. A lot of times you're getting nothing in any of this. We're talking basically mom and pop businesses on the street were third in line after hedge funds that had less than 50 employees making millions per year and producing no value were more, they were considered small businesses. So again, we are seeing where the real value is placed in terms of power in this country. And it's not placed regardless of your, your political views, regardless of your cultural views. Basically, the little guy is getting screwed left and right. And I think the only blessing that's come out of this is to realize as you're sitting at home, and I'm, we, you and I are seeing it on the street where families are going out walking, where they're going out bicycle riding together, and they're beginning to see, especially when you know no one's driving anywhere, that we actually do have a power if we don't buy. And if we don't use this stuff, they can't float on that phony financial edge forever. Oil crashed into the negative region for the first time in history. That's not 87 years, that's of all time. <laughs> there was so much oil being produced and so little of it being used that literally it's costing more to store it than to sell it. So it's down to like a dollar, a dollar twenty in a lot of states now. Yes. And um and 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 oil futures like I said are negative. So what what we did learn is wait a minute. They do depend upon us and our agreement. And we can allow the real economy, if we make smart decisions, especially if we're able to make collective decisions, coronavirus has forced us into a collective decision. And it's interesting to note too, it's the first time in 18 years there was no school shooting in March because things were closed. I bet you crime rate is way down rather than way up because everyone is isolating, no one wants to do this. Well, and all the businesses are boarded up. Right, exactly. Wow. And, and wildlife. There's just weird videos of wildlife coming in the heart of cities because <laughs> people, are, people are quiet. <laughs> you got deer and everything filtering. Coyotes in San Francisco roaming the streets. Exactly. <laughs> so you see a glimpse. You, n none of the chemtraily kind of stuff from commercial aircraft because that, that, that's been seriously curtailed. I heard that the pollution was down some 30%. Around the world, in Manila, I used to live in Manila, you can finally see. You literally couldn't see more than a couple of miles. You can see now neighborhoods that are three and four miles away that up in a high rise instead of literally having this black haze between you and that or brownish haze. So we're beginning to detect there's something good about lack of so-called growth, right? Material growth. That there's something else emerging here that says, 
but in this quiet space, being stuck at home, being forced into intimate spaces, and into a moment of reflection that's akin to kind of mindfulness, but collectively. And that, I think, is powerful. I think it is, too. And so we're going to go, we're going to riff on that in a little bit. Um, mm. But be before then, let's look at some of the hard facts. Um, okay. I know people, I have relatives that have been uh, laid off and they're not planning on the op reopening in some mm -hmm. cases. They're not getting their jobs back. Uh, when you have 20% unemployment and you have small businesses, like you know our local a pizza shop that everybody loves, for example, if they didn't have enough in savings to be able to make it through a period of time like this and crank back up again, then you're talking about a real loss in terms of communities, the complexity of communities, the goods and services in communities, and people without work. So I think because we're not yet, we're just right now at a point where I think today, uh, this, what is today, like the 23rd, I think the 24th of April, um, Georgia has decided it's going to go ahead and open up things culturally important to them, which is uh, bowling alleys and gyms and some other things are going to be open in Georgia, okay? And their death rate from this virus is uh, rising at the same time. So we can use that kind of as a, as a template about what happens when you decide you're just going to open it up and jump on it and let the chips fall where they will. Okay, let's talk about how California, in contrast, is handling it uh, compared to Georgia and just kind of show how the states are going because right now we're all in one place. Nothing's opened back up yet. Right, and actually we're going to see basically various state-sponsored experiments. If they are experiments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, 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 and we will have a kind of state-by-state -state almost comparison what happens to the death rate in Georgia. Right. Is it as bad as people think? It's starting to come into warmer weather. Is that going to help, you know, as it tr traditionally does with the flu season, or is this a different kind of virus? But I think what's creating a, a, a background of uncertainty with all of this, and you've noted this, Regina, it was you first who brought it forth, I think the, before I talk about breaking journalism, before anything else I have seen, um, very early on, months ago, this notion that doctors and nurses who were young and healthy were dying with, because of exposure to this virus. So there was a notion that if you had medium or just infrequent exposure to this, or you just got a little bit of it into your body, it would go as a flu and other viruses would normally go. That is, if you were very old and then very at risk, you, you could die. But for everybody else, even with this virus, we, people were thinking, or with a normal flu virus, were thinking you had no problem. Doctors, healthy doctors and nurses don't die from regular flu viruses, and they're dying in large numbers proportionately with this virus. They so, are, and I know quite a few people in the medical industry in different countries, and they're saying, for the doctors there, it's a nightmare. Um, I was talking to one friend who's every person in her family is a doctor or a dentist. Right. And so all of their acquaintances are, are doctors as well. And mm -hmm. the outbreak that happened in Wales, for example, the doctor in Wales um, told her sister, who's also a doctor, that 50% um, of the doctors were out right. as a result of the virus. And some of them very seriously ill. And of course, you have a mortality rate. This isn't normal. And I think that's what's so spooky about this, Zeus. Right. No one knows what to think. How are you going to get an economy going again? Right. People have no information. They don't know if they've already had it. 
we think that a lot of people we know had it in uh, January, February in California. Yeah. Um, so, but if we don't know and we don't know how scary it could be or couldn't be, how is that going to affect the reopening of an economy? Even if each of the states says, come on, kids, let's come out and play. Let's spend some money if you still have any. Yeah, and that's it. You know, neither you or I are big on the hysteria end of things. And this thing can be hysteria. I mean, you know, getting rid of, uh, you know, skateboard parks or trying to keep people in their homes when it's more or less perfectly safe to maintain the, the six feet going out for a walk outside, not to mention uh, some of the social aspects. And a lot of the worst death rates have to do with diseases of despair and isolation. So there's that end as well. But let's say that we have. Uh, a manageable medium policy where people can, you know, go about their day, it, it, you know, uh, wear their masks, which actually has proven to be helping effective, eliminate most of the easy things. There are some unique things about this virus that we have not been prepared to deal with. In our economy, getting back sort of to the economic part, we have been led to believe it's all a matter of perception, right? How rich do you feel? They talk about the wealth effect, right? It doesn't matter how much money you have, how much wealth do you think you have or do you feel you have? And that can include all the credit and being able to spend freely and believing that you'll be able to pay that debt, right? Now coronavirus comes in and throws out a real uncertainty. It's not a perceptual uncertainty. It's a real uncertainty, right? Because before, you know, consumers don't know if the economy is going to go well or not. That's kind of like, you know, marginal or subjective uncertainty. And this is an objective uncertainty with real numbers behind it. Unusual things are happening and you don't know if it's going to apply to you. It's not following the rules. So we're jarred out of our kind of propagandized thinking about how the world works and we have to grow, grow, grow as an economy. And now we're being thrown into this new world, not only this quietness and this intimacy that we're being forced into, but the very real prospect that there can be not only this bug, but bugs in the future, and probably likely bugs in the future, that are going to play by a different set of objective rules. And these new objective rules mean we are going to have to change and get out of our heads and realize there is an environment out there. We live in a world. <laughs> we live in a world where we can't even say, oh, it's a threat and we've got to be scared because that's not going to help either. We're going to have to be a lot more logical. We're going to actually have to be more optimistic we're going to have to be more resourceful about how we begin to engage the world out there. And we're going to have to work together instead of against each other to deal with these things that affect all of us. And I think that is the silver lining. I think so. And I love the way you said that. Um, I had a live event the other night, and I think you were attending it um, also. Yes. And one thing that we both noticed and everybody else at the live event noticed um, was that I said, look, if we're being confronted with creating a new future economically and otherwise, and we are in that moment now, then what would your future look like? What would you dream into reality? I said, please put in the chat box your version of what this world would look like. And the top word that came out over and over again was that people wanted to have community. Mm -hmm. Now, this whole notion, you, you just said that come together on a local level, real people joining together, helping one another, uh, playing together, uh, sharing together. This is, was the deepest desire of this group of people. And mm -hmm. this is a lot of people are writing books and articles about this now. This is the beauty of what's emerging, which I think is very intelligent, 
So I personally think that this is an incredibly creative uh, period of time where we're going to be, we're going to have to turn to one another. And you and I have both been talking about this. I was talking about it in Conscious Media Days as we were ramping up to 2008. Something's coming that's going to make us more interdependent. So I know that's a really big thing of yours, interdependence and community. So go ahead and riff on that a bit and mm -hmm. tell us how you see this functionally coming together where my cousin just lost her job and won't be able to afford her house much longer. Exactly. In fact, I mean, you've noted this many people, the subtitle to my book, Transforming Economy, which actually was published in 2012 and I really got going in 2013, was um, Transforming Economy from Corrupted Capitalism to Connected Communities. And it is that connection and that community which is really the emphasis and I think is what we're forced to contend with now. Before we come in living our lives symbolically through larger companies, through our, you know, our, our pensions, we're really bound to these big you know, multinational companies that really didn't have our interests at heart. And, um, and now I think to some degree, because we're forced into a more local frame of mind, and we're also forced to begin to realize that our purchasing decisions will affect local businesses who will need our help more than ever once things start getting up to make sure that they don't go out of business, that, that we basically went from this symbolic individualistic and independent ethic to a real, not an imaginary, but a real understanding of our interdependence. As we see, like you said, you know, families, perhaps going out of business if we don't help them. You and I have loved this, uh, one of the best coffee houses in North America or something. It was, yeah. you know, uh, a poor choice right next to us over here in Auburn. They decided as they were being closed down to begin to run a, a, a business, not really so much for profit, but for the community to get food out there. So they were actually literally taking orders and shipping that food and using some of that to also get food to people who couldn't afford it and couldn't have access to it. So you and they continue to do that now, now in this right. kind of new period about what's left, who has money for food, they still are continuing a program and ramping it up. Do you, if you have money, do you want to support a family? Do you want to nominate a family who really needs support? This right. is really grassroots a community, I think, at its very best. And it's not just temporary. It's creating experiences that are bringing us into a new understanding of quality of life. And across the traditional division, it's been the most divisive era. You know, all the, the Republicans and Democrats, that was always what was being cranked out by the mainstream news media, right? Mm -hmm. And your program has always been kind of the opposite. You know, your audience is diverse. It's from across all the different backgrounds. I mean, it's one of the most demographically diverse audiences out there. And I think every, all of the, your listeners can, can relate to this. What drew them is not these little demographic categories or catering to this or that ideology or catering to this or that formula or this or that desire. It was the ability to come together from different viewpoints to engage new material, new content, new, content, new ways of life that will lead us into the future in more positive and creative and healthy ways. So now this is the gift, this is the silver lining here. We are being forced into that and recognizing what we should have done all along. 
you know, I mean, <laughs> yes. And so we, yes. And so now I think we're looking at what happens if you have a diminished income in your family. Okay. Mm -hmm. What if you lose a job? First thing is, how are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to pay your mortgage? Well, mm -hmm. we know that there are going to be defaults on mortgages. That's going mm -hmm. to happen. It happened right. before. It's going to happen probably in large numbers. What happens with people, for example, like some of you watching this may be in this uh, situation, that mm -hmm. bought your house based on a thriving economy that had Airbnb built into it where you could rent out part of your yeah. property to help subsidize the mortgage when right. this industry is also now grinding to a halt, for example. And I mean, it'll start coming back. Parts of it, certainly, I'm not saying this is doomsday, but right now, uh, there, if people are in a pickle if you were relying on that income. So I think there is going to be uh, diminishing in, in the uh, value of housing and a glut of housing and commercial buildings, which we're already seeing around here um, on the market. So what's that mean? It means we get to move back in with family. <laughs> you know, you better make up with your brother because he has a huge house and you might need to be able to either rent or, or live in a room for a little while. And I've always been big on this notion of finding out where your true, true resources are. Your right. true resources are your relationships with people. Right. You have a good enough relationship with it. You can turn to if you're in trouble. Uh, we've right. had the arrogance of being able to stay separate in our own little condos and apartments and hidey holes for a long time. Right. That may be going away. We may have to live intergenerationally. And I think that's actually a good thing. What are your thoughts on that? I think it is. Again, all of this was driven by something completely inefficient and unsustainable, which was this ethic of American achievement, individual achievement and independence from each other rather than quality of, so it was standard of living, right? Quantitative in notion. Now we're moving into, or invited to move into a quality of life where it's, where it's not a failure to move in with someone, right? From that American dream of individualism and separation and individual achievement and going, you know, selling a multi-billion dollar app or whatever. Now it's more getting in touch with intrinsic life qualities that are actually enhanced, it's not a failure to move into someone, it can enhance your ability to have meals together. It can enhance your ability to pool your resources and have a, a larger meal that you don't have to prepare separately for two families, saving all kinds of time. Uh, Childcare, now you can pool that as well and there's an added benefit the kids can play together instead of just having one parent's attention taken up all the time, especially when two people are working. So we're beginning to understand that, there, that this may not actually be a failure. This may not actually be a step back. It may actually be a step into sanity, especially environmentally in terms of sustainability, uh, a step into sanity and understanding that this old notion of growth was something that was sold to us. It was never viable or healthy to begin with. We didn't concentrate on the right priorities. We emphasized the urgent over the important and the urgent was driven by those big guys who right. just wanted to steal our money and concentrated. And we're like, <laughs> Wait a minute, okay? <laughs> And we're seeing that, like I said, with big oil, we're seeing that across the board. If we can become healthier, if we can have a, a more stripped down but higher quality living, it's going to force the rest of them to follow. And that is the real power. We've always tried to do it governmentally or try to get somebody in there who's going to create regulation or something like that. And it's always been co-opted. But now we actually have demand, our own demand, our own decisions we're going to make. They're going to create a collapse in so many of these markets that is gonna force them
to cater to us finally, you know, and if they don't, they're going to lose even more because we're going to have less money. We're going to move in more together. We're going to spend even less on them. <laughs> and so it's, uh, they can go ahead and look forward. The way that I, I talked about it as, uh, as an example that's already happened was the organic food movement. When the organic food movement jo uh, joined broadly across all these supposedly separated categories by people interested in increasing their health, the clarity of their thinking, the quality of their life, and start moving en masse to purchase organic foods. The price came down. Those big box, uh, you know, these big corporations, you know, their high fructose corn syrup could not be thrown on their faces. We're like, no, we don't need it. It's not good for us or our kids. And then they had to adjust, right? They tried to get rid of it. <laughs> I agree with you. I think this is like a, a major thing facing these companies right now right. because people have started staying home and learning how to cook. Whoa, right? <laughs> what a and, novel idea. People aren't eating all their meals out. That's right. going to have an, an impact alone. Right, right. Now we can be selective yeah. and we can be healthier. And you and I noticed this too about just uh, urban gardening and people uh, in the local store here, you know, Green Acres um, is bombed with work. We know that because one of our friends works with there because people are buying up plants, planting them and really much more getting in touch with the earth, much more getting in touch with the idea of growing their own food. Now, what would that do to these big ConAgra and these huge, huge corporate agri-farms and businesses, right? Uh, that just poured pesticides in and have millions of acres that they cultivate at one time. All of a sudden that demand's dried up. Now what's gonna happen, right? So again, we're, we're finding ways that we, through our own choices, especially around a different quality of life that's, again, to use your term, more interdependent, more delighted, less in the grind, less in the cubicle, less separated, less being told what to do and exploited, all of a sudden we're beginning to find out we have a power. We have a power we can exert, especially collectively and interactively, that, uh, that many of us were not aware of before. I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. Uh, you've heard me talk about this before. I've mentioned it a couple times. I'm trying to get a graphic representation of it done here. And that has to do with um, the whole pyramid. David Icke, for example, you know, people are aware of the pyramid that David has shared through the last 20, 30 years with the power elite at the top of the pyramid, um, who basically pull the strings and control the world's economies, governments, and so forth. But I think we're at that wonderful potential crossover point right now where we can flip that pyramid upside down because I re resonate very strongly with what you're saying. The reality is there is no economy without our participation. Mm -hmm. Now we can choose how we want to engage with it. We can literally drive industries with our own cooperation, or lack of cooperation, consumption or lack of consumption. This mm. is a golden moment. We decide which industries will start prospering in the future, not the people at what I call the bottom of the pyramid, that tip right. down at the bottom. Right, and, and that's an incredibly empowering meditation and, and call for action. 
we don't have to agree to that. One of my favorite uh, quotes was, what if they threw a war and nobody showed up? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what if they threw a, you can put in anything in the blank in there, a big credit bonanza. Hey, you got to get this. It's free credit. And we just said, no, sorry, not interested. Oh, it's a great, you know, this pesticide, high fructose food. We get, it's two for one. And we're like, nope, growing my own food. Thanks. You know, what happens when we begin to do these sorts of things and all of a sudden, all these little addictive come-ons about how much you're going to save and, you know, what kind of sugar high you can get from this, uh, it doesn't work anymore. And people decide, no, not interested. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's kind of cool. One of the movements happening is that millennials are starting to not all millennials by any means, but the, a millennial movement toward going back to the land, raising kids out on uh, some land, even if it's a little backyard, a little patch where you can grow your own vegetables and such. Mm -hmm. This is a really healthy trend. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I see is becoming pervasive in the future. I know, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people and one of uh, the reasons I think Pen Penny Kelly's original work was so popular with people, it was looking into the future in terms of what happens in almost a kind of a, a post-apocalyptic uh, reality around the world. And what it was is exactly what we're talking about. People mm -hmm. living in extended communities, people growing their own food, using their creativity and imagination to provide the goods and services that that tribe or that community needs. I think we're at a place now where we need to engage our imaginations. We, we should engage our imaginations. We have, the, we have the option now to engage our imagination where we might have just skated before because we were so tired. Right. And stopping to think of how we could change this again. I mean, I've said golden opportunity and silver lining many times, and, and I think that's where we are. Right. The whole you know, bumper sticker, think globally, act locally, is becoming now a reality and a real opportunity. Um, in my book, I talked about the degeneration. They are a Japanese group of young people, millennials mostly. Um, who were basically spending the time between gardening and being on the land, and then the other part being more cyber-oriented. So yeah. these, two aren't, these two don't have to be apart from each other. We can be linked in wise ways, it's not just addicted to social media, to begin to connect our goods and services, even across you know, certain distances, where the most of our stuff is being, you know, our needs are being met locally because it's a lot more efficient, it's better environmentally, it's much more intimate and much more uh, interdependent, as you're saying. But that doesn't preclude our ability to sell in specific ways something we're really good at, you know, into a larger marketplace. But it's gonna be very tailored, very customized, and we, it doesn't preclude us from having global consciousness through, you know, Zoom meetings and the internet and so forth so that we can link up across uh, demographics, across national boundaries, to create a, a much you know, more vibrant and high quality global understanding that is flavored by everyone's individual experience and ethnic and cultural intelligence and experience. So, so to me, we have a possibility of having the best of both worlds. The breadth and diversity and vitality from all these different spices created by our separate existences all over the world with an emphasis on the interdependent and caring and intimate community oriented um, meeting of our needs and basic running of our life 
but one in which we will have freed up time to talk like you and I are talking and others are beginning to learn about a lar larger global consciousness, consciousness that's also emerging, where common ethics, where common dedication to one another, where war is no longer acceptable, profiteering is no longer acceptable, predatory practices are, are automatically outed, right? <laughs> and then we are, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're given the opportunity to see that not just in this, in, in just in conspiratorial terms, but as a call to action to say, ah, nope, we refuse civil disobedience. We refuse to be a part of that. And without our agreement and not without you snowing us, you're not going to be able to survive. And that is real power, right? That is real power, and the power is in our hands, which I'm not saying it is a bumper sticker, it's truthful. However, now let's get back to individuals. In certain circumstances, I'm just gonna toss a few circumstances out that will cover some of the people that are watching this right now. So say, say you're in your 30s, you know, you're, you're a millennial, um, whatever age you are, you're still young and vital in your working years, and your job has been eliminated, and the industry you're in is shrinking. So mm -hmm. how would you approach that in that kind of scenario, say you're renting a place, you're, you right. don't have a mortgage, so you're a right. renter at this point, so you don't have, you're not gonna go through bankruptcy or anything necessarily in this right. situation. Maybe you have some credit card debt, pretty typical mm -hmm. situation. How would yeah. you approach this time? Well, I think again, you think in terms of resourcefulness, right? You think in terms of opportunity and you think in terms of real objective terms in, in terms of liabilities. I mean, um, and those liabilities are not there to make you feel like a failure. They're not there to uh, force you into a, a lower quality life. They're there to help create limits around your pretensions and your decisions and choices. So um, typically, and I hate this conversation, of the talk shows, the financial talk shows on the radios drive me crazy because you get thrown into two different things. One is this hyper-saving mode, right? Where you're basically kind of a scrimper and saver, a little bit of a sort of a wise miser, right? And you're going to build up everything and then you're going to have this golden retirement. All those idiots who keep spending their money are going to be down there, you know, down in the gutter somewhere, right? Who wants to live a life like that? You want a full and benevolent life. You don't want to have the scrimpy, savey kind of thing going on. And on the other hand, you have this like, life is material. You know, let's just keep like there's LA, you know, it'll be everybody's got to look to pretend that they're rich. Well, I reject both of those models. OK, you can have a very abundant life with a lot of mostly uh, intrinsic qualities, non-scarce goods of intimacy, community, relationship, time together. OK, where in this case with the millennial, you see this as an opportunity about uh, to do a review of what you value. A lot of millennials really do value. Um, relationships and participation and talking over a dinner table or doing something like that, playing even games. I mean, there was a, a rise of game parlors where people are finally discovering it's nice to just play games in a coffee house or something. So I would see it as an opportunity if I were that person. I do an inventory. I talk about doing that inventory in your book, right? Where's my money? Where are my values? What's important to me? What's an urgent? Um, I have a, a, a kind of an exercise in some of the, uh, we, we, if, if anyone could see my uh, initial interview with Regina on Gaia TV, you can go ahead and, and look that up. But anyway, 
and then look for ways to cut out the fat, look for ways to open up opportunity. In this case, maybe move in with someone. Put in your notice, okay? Um, find useful ways to add value around that house. Um, you've mentioned go where the love is. You may have to move in with family or someone who still loves you <laughs> and realize it's not your fault. One real blessings about this is before you'd be looked at as a failure, right? Everyone would look at you like, I've got a job, right? Hey, I'm making it work. You should too, even when they were, you know, credit to the hilt and debt to the hilt. Now everybody's in the same boat. Yes. It's massive numbers. So no, like you, don't, you, can, you don't have to get, you can get rid of that self-esteem issue, right? right. <laughs> it's not my fault. It's nobody's fault. It was the virus's fault, if you want to talk about it that way. It really was the virus's wisdom, but do whatever you want to do. Now we're thrown into the situation where we're all involved. There isn't the kind of shame around it. So now we can look at opportunity. Hey, do I really want to spend all this time grinding through just to eke out this really expensive dinky apartment in, in the middle of a Tony city that's charging me 60 or 70% of my take home pay just to live in a little cracker box? Maybe the answer is no. Maybe there are better opportunity to live with other people, pay less, share food costs, have a better community of inquiry. Um, if that person isn't employed, Maybe through those connections, get some kind of meaningful work, if not that in volunteer work that's pro-community, that has to do with your passion, right? So now you can step back and not just be in a quarantine situation, but out there in the world doing what you want to do, creating those more intimate connections. So again, I, 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 most, most millennials I speak to like that kind of life, but it's almost as if we don't have a space for it or permission yeah. for it. No. Yeah, absolutely. I love the fact that you're saying there is to take the shame out of the whole thing. Right. Uh, again, so much, you know, kids uh, and young people afraid of the judgment of their parents and even mm -hmm. parents afraid of the judgment of their kids that they've somehow failed. Just drop right. the judgment. We're all starting over again. Exactly. You and know? it's a good starting over. It's not only not a failure, it's a success. Mm -hmm. Look at the failure we came from. Yeah. Look at, at what we've been how much we've been shown it's a failure. The pollution has gone down. We can see things. <laughs> you know, wildlife is coming into our cities. Hello. <laughs> what we were doing before was a failure. <laughs> it was. Okay, so I, I want to go to two other groups right. to address because I, I know your thoughts and feelings on this, right. and mine are very similar, and it has to do with education. Right. And even though you're personally highly educated with your PhD in the philosophy of education, so mm -hmm. you're steeped in the world of education, right. you would say a lot of people that are struggling through this whole college thing shouldn't even bother with it. There's a point, there's a point where you have to strategically make that decision. And right now with families coming under some financial hardship and those right. nasty loans on the, the backs uh, as an alternative, how do you see higher education playing out in a time with, no, we're not going to stay 20% unemployment. It's going to drop back down as some industry opens back up again, for sure. Right. But we're still going to be challenged. Everybody know, Every economist says, it ain't going back to normal. We're going to be challenged. What do you say to someone who has a, a, a child who's, a, say, a sophomore or junior in high school trying to determine what they're going to do? I would say do an inventory of your great, going back to what you've done in your workshop, your real sparks of desire. I've counseled this for quite some time. 
where you are going to be most portable, most useful, most effective, and even the best at earning money will be the thing that you are not, not just in terms of a hobby passion, but something you have a deep hunger to inquire about and work through. You know, a lot of people go to college to explore something of that passion, but college doesn't oftentimes deliver. They, you know, they give you this kind of bland cafeteria style food slash knowledge, and they don't actually prepare you unless you're like in some specific things like architecture and engineering to actually engage in internships and see what those jobs are like or help you create connections. It just gives you a degree and says, ta-ta. <laughs> oh, by the way, 100,000 or 140 or $160,000 you paid for us, that's now used. You got your degree, that's what you paid for. I think people are gonna be more discerning. You, it is possible, and I see, just as I'm seeing a regionalization uh, and a devolvement and decentralization of, of, of authority with governors taking over the whole response to this COVID thing, I see the same thing in education. A more customized, more localized um, development of educational circles to meet real needs that are identified in society and then bringing in coursework or bringing in knowledge and YouTube and so much of it's free now, a lot of it's free knowledge on the net, uh, you can just access to the internet to solve actual problems and to develop expertise and passion around those problems and then you become the go-to person, right? So it's kind of like you, Regina. I mean, you're the go-to person for, for what you do and you did not go through any kind of institutional framework to get it. So in many ways, you are a good example of that. Yeah, well, thank you for that. <laughs> you know, I was just, I was having a flash on this too, because what's happening is a lot of schools have been, universities have been forced to go online with their teaching. Some are going to find that that's actually an effective means, uh, mm -hmm. cut down on the overhead of these massive campuses and so forth. Right. And so I think this is something in the future that we're probably looking at is a lot of online learning. It has mm -hmm. implications in terms of social development, but right. this is just me. You don't have to comment. <laughs> Just putting this out there, everybody. What if we are doing mostly online teaching? The whole right. subject of vaccines, even in California, you can't go to school without vaccines. Now people are definitely on alert about these <laughs> vaccines coming down the road. So there might even be some wonderful hidden potentials there um, in that if uh, we can keep education online and homeschooling more, um, right. might be able to do an end run around some of that kind of vaccine issue as well. But that's just an aside. You don't even have to comment. I think I want to, though, because um, it, again, brings power into the hands of people. Yes. You say, if you want to get a college degree, you have to get a vaccine, for instance. You say, well, maybe I don't want to get a college degree. Why don't I want to get an even better education that costs way less? And maybe on an online, I have that, we keep talking about how successful the course I taught on emotion and motivation. The emotion and motivation, yeah. It, it, it was hands-on. People go through their own emotions, investigating, being curious about negative emotions, learning to transform them into positive emotions, not in a thinky way, but literally in ways that are applied with relationships and problems they're experiencing in their life. So many people said, this is an amazing class. It's really transformed my life in practical and real ways. And it was all online. All online. Even the group work. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So, so what was powerful about this was the fact that it's empowering people to engage in connections. It's an ironic thing to have an online class doing that even better than an in-person class taught by a boring lecture with generic information being spit out. 
but I guess, you know, it makes sense after a while. But this is, I think, the, it not only creates a more vital and more accessible and more choice-oriented engagement with education where you can tailor it around your own life experiences and problems, which is what I do with my classes, those classes will become much more important in the future. But it also gives you power. By being able to refuse the institutional approach and say, I can do better on my own or with my community or my global community to learn this and learn how to actually deal with problems and create a valuable skill that I can get paid for, or in exchange, if we're talking even more, you know, innovative ways of being compensated, then all of a sudden they, just like big oil, big pharma and all those others, will have to come to your door rather than you come with your begging bowl to theirs. So here we have this amazingly amazing democratic opportunity where people, the yes. ground up, the reversed, the reverse <laughs> pyramid that you talk about, where we're at top, and you know, the so-called masses are at the top saying, uh-uh, we want this and not that. You guys at the bottom are going to have to look up at us. That is an interesting uh, image. It is. And what, what is amazing about your course is that because it's online and it has to do with emotions and motivations, not to digress too much because it's a very powerful course, people actually felt more inclined to bring more of themselves forward because there was a certain kind of protection in the anonymity of being behind their own computer and engaging with this. And really, so it ended up having this kind of unexpected, again, a hidden benefit by not being in the classroom where people would have been shy to express themselves. So there's a lot we have to look at there in terms of the opportunity of online education. So now I want to go to the next subject, uh, the next group, and that is people who now kind of hit retirement age, talking about boomers, right? Boomers are like, okay, I've been paying into social security of my whole life. Uh, I have an IRA. I bought my house. I don't have very many payments left, or at least my mortgage is low. I bought it a while ago. Kind of the most uh, kind of standard secure kind of boomer scenario you can imagine. What would you say to a boomer right now with this changing economy? Well, I would say because a lot of them are saying, oh, I'm going to have to work X amount of more or part-time for another five years. And some of them are even saying, I'll just have to work till I die. And I'm like, you know, in order to get the same level of standard of living or, you know, potentiality with regard to the retirement dollars, right? That they had imagined for themselves before all the stuff came down, right? And to that, I would say, do a revision of that initial image, right? You were taught that success means that you had this money to travel and do these different things and so forth. And, and, and this brings the fear that all that's gonna be restricted. And then your initial unconscious response to that is, I've gotta work more, build up my base, you know, in order to make up for all the money I lost in the stock market and this COVID virus. And I'm like, that's not the only way you can do it. <laughs> You can say, wait a minute, I already have, a lot of them have 600,000, 700,000, 800,000 in savings. It's not unusual to have a million or so in the retirement thing. But even if you only have, say, 100, and most baby boomers have at least somewhere around 100,000, 200 to 300,000. Even if you have those, uh, think about it in terms of this, not just getting it back and then individualizing everything and then I got to work, 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 work. You know, I got to find, you know, some part-time here and part to, to, to stock this initial idea I had about a good retirement, use it to, to be more resourceful again, you know, use it to say, Hey, 
what are the things that I most enjoy that don't cost anything? What are the things that I tend to avoid when I'm working or I'm worried about money? And once you begin to write those down, say, do I need more money to achieve these? Or what do I need in order to achieve these? And that's when you can get creative. Can you move in? I mean, I, I think some of the most successful baby bird communities are those that decided not to just move into the same house, because in a more individualistic era, they have a courtyard and they, and they array these small houses. You could even make tiny homes if you wanted to, with each other, with a courtyard. They would have dinners at each other's houses, or they have a, a central community building that they could then come to. And they're allowed, they have their, their unique individual existences. It's a little scaled down. They have the buying power of all of them, right? So they can go ahead and limit expenses and they have their individual choices and existence in their own homes. So that's an innovative way to say, hey, you don't have to can your independence or can the yeah. generation or history that you're built with, but you can become more innovative about finding more imaginative or creative ways to gear that toward the times. You know, one of the trends I read a little while back was that the, the, the fastest growing trend among, in the development community in terms of residential development was multifamily housing, mm -hmm. where you have a couple families with a core to the house. They shared right. a kitchen, but had rooms and essentially two houses in one. So right. I think that is going to become the way. And one of the things I was just going to toss in there, if you're boomer age, you know, that means you probably have kids and grandkids, is um, I did an interview with Andrea Villa. And Andrea is an Italian man. And we, we, he would talk about life growing up in Italy and how it takes a family, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to raise then grandchildren. He said, what? I don't understand. What is going on in America? Where are the grandparents? Everybody's playing golf. Who's raising these little kids, right? Everyone right. off in their, their uh, you know, country club environment and off on their vacations. And what he said is very true. Yeah. A lot of times, the Leo generation that are the boomers, the ones who went out and protested and tried to change the world, are very individualistic. Mm -hmm. And what's happening to all these little kids, these little grandkids that could really use right. stay-at-home wisdom by these grandparents? Right. In fact, in my book, I raised this example. It's a very kind of easy and accessible example about young people. And this, is, this has happened in some homes where they, they move into the home. The older person is paying for the rent, which is by far the highest expense for young people. The young person is helping them with small jobs around there and also then getting the benefit of their wisdom and mentoring, whether yes. it's business or the thing that they're going into, right? And I even added that into that into this example, supermarkets that are having expired food instead of dumping it in the dumpster, supporting this program by providing food for both of them, right? right. <laughs> to help, to right. help increase this program. Look at all the pluses, the win-win-win situation. You're, you're, you're saving food in the environment by not trashing you know, perfectly good food that has an expiration date on it. You're not the, the wisdom of this grandparent or this older person is not being wasted, but directed toward this young person. The energy and youth and ability to get certain things done physically for this older person is not just being distributed into partying or doing whatever, but directed into these mature, very community sensitive and community supportive ways. 
This is interdependent living that's creating um, assets, uh, metaphysical assets, social assets, cultural assets, knowledge assets out of thin air, out of the pure goodwill and interaction and exchange that you have in non-scarce, non-material goods. And I think that's where we're moving, experience versus progression. And I talk about this in my book, but also uh, the notion of goodwill, imagination and creativity versus pattern, formulaic, extraordinarily expensive and environmentally costly, you know, individual sort of, sort of vanity projects. Again, I'm not going to make any judgment. You guys, if you want to binge on Netflix or you want to go on a, you know, environmentally, you know, maybe somewhat uh, fuel, uh, uh, fuel costly. Oh, perhaps a cruise liner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't get me on a cruise liner now. But anyway, uh, but if you want to, I'm not going to even judge you on that. The fact is, by simply opening up these other avenues, experiencing them and seeing them as real possibilities, we are going to have much more of a moderation of that other activity. We don't have to get into the Puritan mode and shut everything down. I'm a vegan and I'm not, I, one of the things that drive me crazy is you have a militant vegan. It's a little bit, it's a little bit of a stereotype I think that goes on much more than the vegans that I know. But there's nothing worse than having a vegan that just looks really judgmental and is militant about everyone not eating meat. You, you know, it's much better to say, here, this works for me. It's got clarity of thinking. And some of you, you may, may need a little bit of meat. Some of you like paleo. Uh, but if we all have that kind of interactive conversation and support, what's going to happen is the more environmentally, uh, the health-wise uh, things that are not good for us, environmentally unsustainable agricultural products are going to go down and go down fairly dramatically. And we don't have... Yeah. We don't have to be ascetics. We don't have to be, you know, Puritans. We don't have to be militant about these things. We can just be very straightforward and inviting, and it's going to create a huge change in direction and a very healthy, healthy uh, readjustment for us. I think so. And as we kind of come toward the end of the conversation, it's kind of interesting. We're going to see this. This is obviously going to be dated at some point. But as we sit right now and the states are contemplating and the countries around the world are contemplating how to move things, basically move the economy along and get it opened back up again. Uh, the state of California, for example, has brought on board Tom Steyer, who was a Democratic uh, candidate for president and dropped out of the race fairly early on. But his claim to fame is he's a self-made billionaire that has a social conscience. And how so he's been being brought on to strategically figure out how do we best by keeping people feeling the safest at the same time getting the most bang for the buck, which businesses do we roll out first? And let's see what happens looking at it that way versus the way Georgia is, which is let's open it up and see if we're okay. It's, you know, it's springtime. We don't know. <laughs> the point is, I'm, I mean, obviously, uh, the thing is, we don't know the actual answer just yet. We're all going to find out. So right. everyone's going to contend with it in their way. And I wanted to talk to you about it because in the end, it's not up to the states. It's up to you, no. me, and everybody watching this. We're at the top of the pyramid. How this economy goes and grows or doesn't is going to be up to us and our participation and choice or lack thereof. And right. I love the fact that even though there is going to be some suffering, there will right. be some bumpy times. These are changing yeah. times. These are revolutionarily changing times. It mm -hmm. is going to be up to us 
not the bottom of the pyramid that mm-hmm. lives over in that little Wall Street bubble. Those right. aren't our peeps. We're not their peeps. <laughs> and no one's coming to save us. Because I have to say this too, and I've told you this, Zeus, I personally think this is a dress rehearsal. Yeah. I think it got us to thinking I about agree. taking responsibility for our immune systems. Yeah. Does, what happens to an economy? How do we social distance if a really nasty, real pandemic actually mm-hmm. comes along one day? And uh, sadly, uh, I think those things are in our future over the next decade of kind of chaotic times astrologically in terms of, you know, as above, so below. It's a time mm-hmm. of change. So- it is. And again, I mean, I can't stress enough that a fervent, hysterical uh, shutting down and using control and isolation to deal with this COVID thing is just as bad as a completely wide open, who cares, you know, we're going to be protected because we have faith, open everything up. The whole thing is to be curious. Nature and spirit is always, always showing us something. If we just get buried into our own fears, anxieties, our own hubris and arrogance on either side, we're not really going to be able to pay attention and take advantage of that spiritual lesson or that spiritual energy or knowledge presenting itself to us. This COVID is presenting a real opportunity to open ourselves to that, to one another, to kindness, to to the different talents that we have and opportunities we have knowing we don't have to know, right? The other ones believe they already know. You gotta just shut down everything and fear, 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 fear. And the other one is, who gives a crap about anything? You know, no fear, no fear, no fear. Just, you know, just do it and whatever you want. Again, both of these are very immature, okay? I, I hate to say it, but both are mature. I, I kind of like the way California going because we're trying to pay a little bit of a middle path. There's a lot of things we could do better probably. But we're trying to take a middle path that says, okay, let's do some best practices here so it doesn't just go out of control, so it overwhelms us. As we get some information, let's go ahead and use that information and see, begin to open up, like I said, businesses little by little. And in our case, also to begin to innovate, do more localized economy. If we do have this, like you said, this bug hit again or a worse one, and we have these localized semi-autonomous interdependent states, we're not going to all have to flood into one place to get something. We can stay distributed. It's a healthier way to do things. We have that option. So I think we do have a real opportunity for this. We don't have to cut uh, toward, toward an Armageddon type of personality. We don't have to say, well, we're just going to go right back to what we were doing before, we just, which was an addictive and not terribly healthy. We have horrible obesity and diabetes in this nation and so forth. So instead of that, Pay attention to what nature is bringing forward. Take, pay attention to this sort of spiritual opportunity here and pay attention to the opportunities we have to know ourselves better and one another better with, with these sort of illusions stripped from us and this quiet place where we can actually say, hmm, okay, I never thought of it that way. You know, and that if we can get into that frame of mind and instead of thinking we're a failure, instead of being terrified of the, hmm, I never th- thought of it that way point, we can actually move in a very interesting and productive direction. And that's what I think is the most exciting about this. The pressure is off. 
the anxiety is hot. We can experiment now. That's what we're good at. America is a creative, yes. experimental. This world is becoming more creative. It's not just America and, and experimental in a positive and healthy way. Let's go ahead and march into that. This age of Aquarius is not just a bumper sticker. You know, it is flowing. It is more in a possibly more creative, more cooperative, more collaborative. Why not embrace it? Couldn't agree more. Zeus, thank you so much for um, sharing all your thoughts on this with people because I find them very rational, sane, um, comforting, and, and a, a great invitation. So um, with that, I know you're continuing to put out uh, quite a few video blogs and also articles on it. And as we get more data, you're going to continue updating um, your platform. So let's just see where it all goes. Um, we're all in this one together. So thank you, Zeus, so much for uh, joining me from upstairs. <laughs> You're welcome, Regina. Thanks for inviting me from downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> now, for everybody watching right now, if you want to read some of Zeus's work or see some of his video blogs, you can go to um, citizenzeus.com. And until next time, I, were, I think we're going to start wrapping up this COVID coverage and start looking at kind of ways to move ourselves into a new future, really about dreaming this new future together. I want to go a little bit more that direction now. And this is kind of the first piece and looking at what's ahead. So uh, come back over the next few weeks. I'll have more coming for you. And until then, thank you so much for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com. <laughs>